I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. I can't stress that enough, Charles, that this podcast right here is the official Mission Impossible podcast. I keep telling you, I think you you, you stress it too much. You think you stress it's, it too much. But it's we're the official Mission Impossible podcast. What do you want me to do? Uh, I just think you should just play it off. Like, no big deal. No big deal? Eh, just, whatever. Yeah, we're, we're the official Mission Impossible podcast. Could care less. Yeah. This is Drew Taylor, once again joined by the vivacious... Charles Hood. How you feeling, Charles? I'm feeling vivacious, apparently. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. I'm trying to will the energy level up, you know, in this intro. Uh, it's good. You, yeah, you, yeah, I'll feed off of you. Thank you. Well, you know, we, we're in a good mood because we are, we're back with another installment of Eddie Hamilton, the Oscar-nominated editor, the one of the chief creative principles in these movies, and we're just so excited to have him back. Yes, we are. Yeah, some uh, great conversation more here about Dead Reckoning Part 1. And I have to say, for this week, just a major spoiler alert, we talk about a big thing that happens in Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, so, you know, just got to tell you to just, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, major spoilers. I'm sure you have seen it. And, and if you haven't, Well, you what they could do, Charles... Oh. What could they do? Well, I think that actually Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is available at all premium digital retailers right now. They could actually download a copy of the movie, watch it, come back to this episode, and enjoy themselves. Well, there you go. You can uh, do that. Oh, Perfect. Great. Great. Well, <laughs> let's just get right into it, Charles, and we'll be back afterwards to wrap things up. Sounds great. Well, this movie has a very different visual style than Fallout, and I wonder how that impacted you and your editorial process, because there's a lot of single shots of people. Correct. I'm thinking of the community sequence. I'm thinking yes. of the club sequence. Yes. And also you cut between angles in dialogue sequences in a really interesting Correct. way. Yeah, correct. Um, so correct. I was wondering, yeah, how, how that new approach to the visuals informed your editorial sense? Oh, yeah. That's a really great question, Drew. Um, so we obviously used digital cameras on this movie for the first time in Mission's history, which was a shame 
because we all love film. I think there is the moment you switch a film camera on and everyone can hear film whirring through a film camera, everyone raises their game a little bit. You know, there's a slight sense of slackness when digital cameras are running for 40 minutes. So I, I think it kind of sharpens everybody a little bit. And I love the texture of film. I mean, I love it. I, I don't think you can beat it, really. It encapsulates the dream state of a movie perfectly for me. And and what by, by that, what I mean is when you go to a cinema, you are entering into a bit of a dream state. You know, it's not reality. It is escapism into a different world of adventure and excitement. And digital cameras can be so clean and so sharp and have so much dynamic range that they feel almost like reality in a way that, um, you know, sports transmissions do or news reporting. And so that's just a side effect of COVID mostly because we had to work with the minimum number of crew on set. And if we had to keep changing film cans and, and, and mags, you know, loading up film mags, it would have been too many people and too much human movement interacting with the actors. So, and also for, for some of the scenes, you physically can't shoot them on a film camera, really. So the, the Fiat would have been a real struggle. Um, the, the magazines would have had to be like, you know, two and a half minutes long on a film camera in order to get them small enough to be attached to the Fiat. And so you'd be running for two and a half minutes and then everyone would charge in and change, you know, so it just, it wasn't practical. And the little Z cams that we used with the spherical lenses for the Fiat were just perfect for that. Um, and we did do something similar, obviously, with the helicopter scene in Fallout, where we had digital cameras in the helicopter uh, intercutting with film at the end of that movie. But certainly the experience that we had on Top Gun Maverick using the exact same cameras, the Sony Venice camera, uh, reassured us that the movie could turn out looking fabulous, which, you know, I'm very happy with the way that Top Gun ended up, you know, when we'd finished the colour pass and the grain pass and all that stuff. But in terms of the how to edit those scenes, so here's a philosophy that McHugh and I discussed and that McHugh evolved as he was shooting this movie. Okay, so there is a direct correlation between the number on the lens and how intimate the lens is with the character. Okay, so if you're looking at like a 25 mil wide angle lens to get a wide shot of a scene, it is not emotional. It is almost all informational. Okay, if you look at that scene in the DNI, the Department of National Intelligence with Carrie Elwes and Kittredge, you know, Carrie Elwes' character is called Denlinger. Denlinger and Kittredge and the other members of the community there. There are two wide shots in that whole scene and it's 15 minutes long. Okay, so you have one wide shot when Carrie Elwes is stood at the window and he walks over to his desk. And you, what's really cool is that McHugh composed that shot so that Kittredge is hid behind a window pillar. So you don't reveal Kittredge's face until he actually stands up in the other wide shot of the scene, which is where Kittredge walks over to the TV and then walks back over to the community. And you see everybody sat in a kind of interesting profile composition. And information, as McHugh has said many times, is the death of emotion. All right. And so we want to make an emotional experience for the audience. And we want to grab them from the very beginning and take them on an emotional journey and not let go until the end credits roll. And so if you want to be intimate with your characters, you need to be on longer lenses because information is 
is a close up on somebody. You know, it, it can be a medium, it can be, a, but generally speaking, if you cut to a close up of someone's face, you're generating an emotional response in the audience instantly. And so McHugh much prefers longer lenses because they're more intimate and therefore they're more emotional. And he would work out what lenses worked with the characters. So a 60 or a 75, sometimes 135 mil in that DNI scene. And the way he would communicate geography in the scene is by common geography between characters. So, for example, we're on Carrie Elwes. We're on a big close up of his face and he's staring out of the window. So his back is to the community and the camera is hinging around this big emotional close up. And you see the characters stood behind him in the set. So you start to understand the geography, but it's an emotional shot because you're on his face. And then when we cut to Indira Varma, for example, and we're on a profile of her, we can see other characters like Charles Parnell, we can see in the background. So we know, well, wait, Indira's there and Charles is there. And then when we're when we're over, um, sometimes we can be over Mark Gatiss to Charles and then you understand, okay, those two are sitting next to each other. So he prefers to do to set out the the geography of the blocking using shots which show two characters in a frame. So there'll be a character in the foreground and there'll be another character. So in the nightclub scene, you're on a profile of the widow and Ilsa is sitting behind her. And then you're on a profile of Gabriel and Ilsa is also sitting behind Gabriel. So you can put two and two together and go, well, Gabriel and the widow are probably sitting opposite each other then. And then we see Ethan sat behind Gabriel and then we see Paris stood behind Ethan. So you get a, a sense of the geography of the space. And then Ethan's looking over to Grace and Grace is looking at Zola's pocket. And then Ethan is looking over to the widow. So you, you get a sense of the geography, but you can stay intimate with the characters at all times. And McHugh can then use really strong compositions. And obviously there's tons of Dutch in this because he likes using the power of the frame and the camera to give the characters power and put them to give them positions of power in the scene or put them under pressure in the scene with a kind of a high angle looking down or a character can kind of stand up into a shot which gives them intense power so when Gabriel stands up in the VIP um, area in the nightclub you know it has a lot of power and when when Ethan stands up and we circle around and we see the entity and and he realizes that the the entity is kind of inside or is the nightclub you know and then when we're cutting the scene we so this is something that McHugh will talk about which is he overwrites all the dialogue right as you know so that we can modulate the amount of exposition in each sequence because we need we don't know for sure what the audience is going to need we think we do but we can't be sure and we need to be able to modulate stuff and and put extra information in and take it out and it's interesting because we have tried every combination of every line in every scene being in or out of the scene to see how much information and how much emotion we get out of the audience. And some of the criticisms we received were that scene feels too long. There's too much dialogue in that scene. And so we would do our due diligence and we would strip away lines of dialogue to compress the scene. And then the audience would go, wait, now we're confused about this or that. And so What's interesting is they want it shorter until you give it to them. And then they realize that actually they need it longer. So every single moment of every scene, we have poured over dozens and dozens of times, sometimes hundreds of times to make sure that that emotional moment is necessary for the audience. 
And McHugh also expects you as a viewer, he expects your attention to wander in these long dialogue scenes because you can't focus for 15 minutes. Hey, listen to me, I'm wandering, I'm, I'm, I'm waffling on for 15 minutes and you're all probably <laughs> checking out wherever you are in the gym. You're walking the dog. You, you know, you've, you've stopped listening to me now. But the point is, he expects certain words to maybe trigger memories for you. And so what we do is we cut to jolt you back into the movie when there is something very important that's happening. So we will cut on specific words so that we are stressing an intellectual idea. We're seeing a character say some important information. Sometimes in the DNI, we're on a 135 mil lens and the character's looking almost down the barrel of the camera because it's so important that you understand what the entity is doing. You know, um, when Indira Varma says, you know, uh, the, any, any uh, information transmitted digitally is corrupted or whatever it is she says, but we need you to understand that, you know, digital information is being corrupted across the world. And, you know, and it's now moved on to the world's intelligence networks, like things like that, which are really important. We will punch into a tight close-up. But we're also modulating the reactions of the other characters and pre-lapping lines and post-lapping lines and cutting to the reaction of Carrie Elwes, which when you've seen the whole movie and you watch it again, you know why he is in the emotional state that he's in because you discover that he's responsible for this, you know, which you don't know the first time you see the movie. Or he's trying to keep it a secret and pretend that he doesn't know anything about it, you know, when he knows full well what it is. And then when we're crossing the line in the scene, say, between Ethan and Kittredge, McHugh will shoot with an A camera and a B camera. So we have left to right and right to left eye lines. And we will choose to, to cut across the line when it's something very important, where we're changing the idea, when we're, we're moving on from Ilsa and we're moving into Kittredge talking about, do you, did you complete your mission or not? And then when we're, when we're moving into the intellectual idea of, uh, you know, whoever controls the truth, what does he say? He says, whoever controls the truth uh, can manipulate. No, whoever controls the key can manipulate the right and the, the, the truth for years to come or whatever it is. And Ethan says, do you even hear yourself? So whenever we're changing to a different intellectual idea, we will change. We will cross the line deliberately to make you like pay attention and drop you out of your state of mind where you've slightly checked out because we've been using the same coverage for too long. Do you see what I mean? So... Um, these scenes do are not easy to cut. They are. I know that once we start, it's going to be a week of work of just getting from the beginning to the end. And I've done a pass of the scene, but McHugh has got a very clear idea in his mind of what the scene needs to be and feel like. And so sometimes I'm I'm kind of way off the mark really with my assemblies, and then we'll dial in. And because we've got so much coverage, you know, on every character. See, we've got so many line readings for each line. We we go through them all and we just make sure that every syllable of every line is exactly what McHugh wants to stress for the audience so that the, there's, a, there's a very easy, natural flow to the conversation. And then we refine the scenes. And, you know, that, that scene I first edited a version of, I think, you know, oh, crikey, you know, in the middle of 2021 or something. And, and we, we kept going and revisiting the DNI. So, I mean, every month, every, I mean, just endlessly, we kept going back to that scene to make sure that it was doing everything that it needed to do.
We'll be back with more from Eddie Hamilton after the break. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And the other thing that's interesting, so that you are aware, is that the the opening of the movie... We experimented with many places of putting the opening titles because we felt where it is now was too late into the movie. I don't know if you realize, do you, do you have a sense of where it is in the film, guys, the opening yeah, titles? Yeah, it's, it's like, what, 25 minutes in or something? Yeah, 28 minutes in, okay, <laughs> which is easily the longest of any movie, apart from wow. Babylon, which has the title Babylon. It just comes up at 32 minutes what in. About, what about The Departed? The Departed is probably 20 minutes The maybe? Departed is like, yeah, but it's like, you know, 24 minutes. But again, it's just the title of the film. Oh, okay. It's not, right. it's it's not like sequence. an opening yeah. title sequence. <laughs> <laughs> the if you watch RRR, have you guys seen that? Like the that yeah, is yeah, an opening yeah. title sequence that plays over the first fifty minutes of the movie. <laughs> so that's kind of an extreme example of where you could. But they they introduce the three R's over the course of like all these different introductory scenes to the characters. But we thought no, it can't be that late. It just can't be that late. So we had it after the submarine with the guy floating up with the key round his neck, and then we had it. Uh, and then we had it off before Ethan got the mission. And then we had it because Ethan's introduction used to be a lot longer. And then we had it after the desert, <laughs> you know, and, and the desert is an interesting one. I'll talk to you about the desert scene. And, and it kept getting, and so, and then it was before the DNI. Um, and then it was eventually, literally a week before we finished, Tom said, okay, guys, it has to come after a caper. Like you want the audience to be, to be enjoying the, the the film when the titles come up, like otherwise, the other places we tried it, it was just like, huh, what, what's the key around this guy's neck? Like, where's Ethan Hunt? Why are we having the titles of the movie? What's going on? And then after the desert, it was like, huh, well, what what what's happened in the desert? You know, that's weird, and and so it was never satisfying, even though we tried it and we screened it there. So in the last week of editing, after two and a half years, Tom said, look, guys, it's it's got to come after a caper. Let's put it at the end of the DNI, because the audiences always love the moment where Ethan turns around and has got the Kittredge mask on. You know, that's like a really entertaining scene. And when he falls out of the frame after being hit with the dart, it's a great transition to have a match strike because the match can come in from left to right. And Filmograph can do that transition. 
that did mean that anything that had happened before that was in the titles, we had to quickly swap out shots because we had some shots from the desert and stuff in there, which obviously had now happened in the movie. So that was very interesting. But then it, a lot of the feedback we kept getting from test audiences was the movie only starts when we get to the airport. Like until you meet the team in the airport, you're just treading water. So if you put the opening titles directly before the airport, then it feels like the movie is starting in the airport. Plus, you've got less time till the end of the movie. So you've already eaten like half an hour of the movie and you've only got two hours left after the titles, which is a lot better than having like two and a quarter hours left. So it was this balance that we were playing with the whole time. And then when we when it the first time we screened the movie, the whole movie with the titles there was actually to the marketing department at Paramount because we didn't have time to do another friends and family. It was like we were right down to like three days of mixing left. We had to make the decision. And I remember the the guys from the studio called us and said, that is perfect. It works so well. Everyone loved it. You've got the whole marketing department who haven't seen the movie and they're, they're seeing an avid output, obviously, just to get them in the headspace of the film. And th they were so thrilled that it worked because also the movie doesn't feel like 28 minutes you know, because you're in it, you know, and it slightly takes you by surprise. But then you, you immediately meet the team and you're like, oh, and you get the scene with Briggs and Dagar and the awesome sound of the Ospreys. And then he's like, do not consider him secure until you've driven a wooden stake <laughs> through his open heart. Like the coolest favorite, McHugh lines of dialogue, line. you, you know, yep. just awesome <laughs> writing from Chris. And then straight into the scene with Benji and and Luther and Ethan. And then and then they're hunting for the key. And she's going through, the, you know, the airport was again, any scene like that where you're intercutting multiple stories is phenomenally difficult. Like there isn't a single easy sequence in this movie, but it's one of those things where you just got to start and like chip away at it. And you know that it's not going to be very good and you're going to have to adjust all the intercut points and, you know, getting all the riddle. There were loads more riddles. There were at least, at least three more riddles in the first version of the scene. And we kept like stripping out riddles and working out when we could cut to Ethan and Grace and how we could cut to Briggs and Dagar and when we showed Paris killing the buyer. And, you know, all that stuff. It was, you know, the, McHugh's, he's gathering ingredients in Abu Dhabi, in on the set, you know, um, in Birmingham. We So we filmed like a half of the scene in Abu Dhabi in the airport and then half of the scene in Birmingham train station in England, which we dressed to look like Abu Dhabi. But And you can't tell, obviously. And then we built the set with Benji. So Benji did actually get to go down to the luggage sorting area in Abu Dhabi airport. So we were given access to that. None of the luggage was moving. So all of the luggage conveyor belts are all were ILM's work. And then when Benji is diffusing the bomb and you see all the kind of layers of luggage around him, that's all ILM as well. Astonishing, like perfect work. You would have no clue that he's not actually there in the bowels of the airport. And then all of Blind's work, all the graphics on Luther's laptop and Benji's laptop where, you know, the, you've got the little warnings coming up. And we iterated those dozens and dozens and dozens of times, all the graphics on the air, on the submarine to tell the story of the other submarine and the geographic proximity. All that stuff, you've got such little screen time and your eye has to go exactly to where it needs to go to pick up the story in the 18 frames that you've got. And understanding Ethan's HUD on his glasses and where the key is and when the key disappears from the buyer and moves to Grace, all that stuff is, it looks effortless now because we we iterated it like dozens of times in order to get there. Um, but that gives you an idea of of some of the things that we were playing with there.
there's some big emotions in this movie. Um, you know, I know we're I know we're talking spoilers, but maybe I'll avoid the big spoiler. <laughs> yes, definitely know, avoid the big spoiler. Dialing in that emotion, and you know, was there a version where the movie paused more to to live in that emotion more? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me tell you that. So that section of the movie was, I think, the hardest to get right. It was very interesting. It was whenever you're intercutting two fights or whatever, there's a million ways to do it. Like you can cut out at almost any point and cut to the other fight and come back and stuff. So to to get the the rhythms of that and and Grace's fight was originally four times longer the fight with Gabriel. If you watch the the most recent trailer, there's there's whole sections of the fight in the trailer that are not in the movie, like where she does a backflip over him and all that stuff. But we, it was too long. And, you know, the story is about Ethan at that point and not really about Grace fighting Gabriel. Although you might be concerned for her well-being based on what's been said in the nightclub about, you know, one of one of these women has got to die, you know. And when Ilsa showed up, it's very interesting. We We didn't have, people were confused about why she showed up. But we had this shot of her running away and making and then running across a bridge and running away. And and there, again, there was loads more of that stuff that we that we took out. But we had this idea of Benji's voice talking to Ethan, luring him into the narrow alleyway and then eventually turning into the entity to say, uh, you are done, you know, which is what's what, what's said in the airport. And he realizes that he's in trouble. And then we were then we were like, well, how does he know where Grace is? And then so we decided to have the entity basically tell him where Grace is and say she's on the Minich Bridge with Gabriel, but you'll never get there in time. And then again, like two weeks before the end, McHugh went, I know what we can do. And this is like one of McHugh's, again, genius ideas. He said, get that shot of Ilsa running away where she crosses over the bridge and she looks over her shoulder. And and have a line from the entity where Benji says, but you can, Ilsa. So you'll never get there in time, but you can, Ilsa. And have a look over her shoulder like she can hear the entity and she's deciding to, she's like, what do I do? Do I go back? So when she shows up at the bridge, it's not a surprise because you've seen her getting some kind of information from the entity. And that was a real discovery. We'll be back with more from Eddie Hamilton after the break. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game. Headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. And then the other thing that was absolutely critical there is the music from Lorne, which again, we only figured out in the last week or two. We could not get the music cue to work. That any, any cue we tried was too action or it was too percussion or it was too heroic. And eventually Lorne 
and his team tried, they came up with a cue that had a kind of tragic inevitability to it. And it was building to something like you feel the cue building to something. And so you actually start to get a bit nervous during the fight because Ilsa's on top, but the cue is telling you that it's something tragic might be coming, right? And she's on top and she's on top for a lot of it. Then Gabriel throws her down and then she kind of starts to fight back. And then all of a sudden you get that tragic ending and the music climaxes and then stops and you just hear her breath and the whole audience is just silent because of it's a shock, right? And then the music, you have those beautiful shots of Ethan running into the the light, the halo, you know, and then he comes out of the light and he runs up. And again, that cue that Lorne wrote was so perfect, so emotional. And again, we cut it totally silent. So the first time we ever watched the movie, it was all just silent. And, and it's like, is this ever going to work? But the music is essential at that point and is so emotional and so good. I will tell you that I suggested being a fan of Rogue Nation, that we use a tiny bit of Ness and Dorma there. Da, 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 you know, which I think for some people would have been a very emotional send-off for that character. And McKee, and Lorne wrote two cues where he, he did very, very gentle hints to that motif from Rogue Nation. But McHugh says, look, it doesn't matter. People, we have to care about this movie and what's right for this movie. You don't want people trying to remember another movie when they're in this movie. And I agree, I get it. But I, I, there's a little part of me that was like, if I, I love Rebecca, right? I've, I've known her since 2014. I love her. She is amazing as a human being on the set. She's wonderful. She's a brilliant actress. She is like breathtakingly beautiful on screen. So I'm very attached to that character. Like all the view, like all the fans are very, very attached to Ilsa. You know, I, I worked on all her scenes for months, crafting the character with Chris and creating that relationship and that emotion with Ethan. And I thought it would be lovely to have a little hint of Ness and Dorma. I think for the fans, it would have it would have resonated very powerfully, but was not to be. And the cue that Lorne wrote was amazing. Now, we crossfade on the big wide shot. We see Grace walk up. So just as a little uh, a little um, fan fact, when they filmed that shot, the aerial shot in Venice, they had Gabriel lying dead on the steps. They did not have Ilsa lying there. So then we replaced her, you know, ILM replaced her later. So there was <laughs> no paparazzi. All the, all the, yeah, and all the bystanders who were there taking pictures yeah, and stuff. There yeah. were lots of people, like like <laughs> lots of people in, in the windows around were taking photographs. And so visual effects, we had to turn out a lot of the lights in the windows, in the wide shots with VFX so that you realise that they were fighting alone. And it was the height of COVID, so, so the streets were deserted anyway and everyone was locked down and, you know, so then we crossfade to Ethan on the roof of the Gritty Palace Hotel, which is where we filmed that. And it, it's a, I think it's a beautiful composition from McHugh because you start on Ethan and then you pull, the camera pulls back very elegantly. Although we never used a dolly on this movie. Everything was either Steadicam or 
uh, or or handheld basically and or using this other rig that McHugh talks about a lot where where it's like it's a handheld rig but it's it's on a, a controlled head that chunky is operating and the camera pulls back and you see Ethan on the rooftop um, and you realize that he is stood exactly where he and Ilsa were stood the night before but it's the cold light of morning and it's not warm and it's heartbreakingly sad and then we slowly cross fade to Grace and Luther walks up and gives her the, the the cup of tea and she's got a she's got a blanket around her and I remember there was a lot more there were shots of Benji thinking about Ilsa there was a scene actually where where when they filmed the rooftop with with Ethan they had a moment where Grace walked up behind him and saw him deep in grief and and kind of tried to say something but didn't know what to say so walked away which didn't work because when we discovered when we we obviously filmed that in Venice and then you know a year later we were filming the scene in the safe house and we discovered that the it was way better to have Grace just sat there and and Luther talking to her now we are weighing up the time that the audience needs to grieve with that character you know i'm the reason she's dead no you're the reason she's alive and that's sorry she's the reason you're alive and that's the truth so we know we've got to put our foot on the gas and get back to missiony shit quickly you know but we have to grieve for the character and i whenever i'm in a moment like that when i'm editing a movie i always remember <laughs> back to 1977 and star wars do you know what I'm going to say? So <laughs> when Ben Kenobi is killed, all right, and Luke goes, no, and then Han goes, oh, we hear Ben go, run, kid, run, or run, Luke, run, and he runs into the Millennium Falcon, and Han and Leah are shooting at the stormtroopers, and they get in, and they and Chewie, punch it, Chewie, they blast out of the Death Star. You literally have maybe 15, no, 12 seconds where Luke is sat at the chess table and he's going and and Leah is sat there and you hear a sad music cue from John Williams and Luke goes, I can't believe he's gone. Right. And then Han walks up and goes, hey, no time to grieve. We've got to shoot these TIE fighters down. And so literally you get 12 seconds of a character grieving. And then you're into the great scene where they're choo, 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 they're shooting all the TIE fighters. <laughs> and I didn't bump at that as a kid. I remember thinking, yeah, OK, I I'm sad that Ben Kenobi's gone, but great. Let's get back to more TIE fighter action, you know. Right, we are back, and that we're getting into some some real intense story detail here. But I thought yeah. it was really interesting the explanation that they used to kind of like figure out how to how to dramatize this this big moment. Yeah, some heavy heavy stuff we're getting into here. And, oh and yeah. yeah, just talk talking about you know comparing comparing the big event to Obi Wan Kenobi and Star Wars, which I think in in a lot of ways makes makes sense i think for some fans it's tough because ilsa's been around for two movies before this mm. so i feel like you know it's 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 a it's a tough thing that you can't it's like you can't bring the movie to a grinding halt to do especially because we're you know trying to get everyone to, trying to make everyone it's like the movie's so long you can't you can't stop for too long it's it's tough it's a tough balance you have to strike there i, I, don't, I don't know i don't know if there's a great answer for it it's tough it's tough but uh it was just fascinating to get get a little peek behind the thought process of that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and, he, and you know, it was a lot of great stuff in this. I mean, he, hearing him discuss the difference between digital and film was really great. And, and you know, just talking about film creating kind of the perfect dream state, mm. whereas digital feels more like reality. I thought that was a really, really interesting way he described that. I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, and also fascinating to hear him talk about the approach and visual style for this movie, because it's really striking the way that this movie is shot. There's just so much energy in the camera movements, and it's so different from Fallout, the way that the, you know, Fallout is like very slow dolly movements, you know, like slow push-ins, and this is like all steady cam, like moving and more like energetic movements and lateral movements and stuff. It's very interesting. It is interesting, Charles. But you know what? We're not done with this conversation. We're going to have people come back. That's true. For more. Come back for part three, please. Please. Well, and Drew, what, what else can uh, what else should we tell everybody? Is there something else we can let everybody know about? Well, I think we should let people know that actually Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is available right now wherever you download your movies. You and I are big fans of, of Vudu. Yes. Of course, there are other options. There is Apple TV. There is Prime Video. Uh, but yeah, you can you can download, purchase, and download Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One right now. Uh, obviously, there are new episodes of Light the Fuse every Tuesday wherever you get your podcast, and we want to tell people to like, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to, and follow us on social media at Light the Fuse Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I think that's yeah, I think that's it, Charles. What do you think about that? Yeah, and that's it. All right. Come on back next week if you want to uh if you want to hear from Eddie Hamilton some more. We got part three jumping in. We got a lot of a lot of good stuff we talk about. Uh so yeah, please do come back. All right. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Alexandra August. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.